9.6% yield. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Don't underestimate the American consumer. Sentiment improving again this morning. Our market guest sees continued resiliency despite rising rates, and she's bringing the names she's buying because of it. Plus, the great question this spring is, how will the housing market fare? From buying to renting to building, we'll drill down on those three key areas in real estate and what it all means for prices, inflation, and housing stocks. And as we're counting down to the Super Bowl, a very special three buys and a bail with the company set to spend big on ads this year. Will it be a repeat of last year's bust? But first, we begin with today's markets, and Dom Chu has those numbers, Dom. All right, the numbers are pretty flat right now, at least for the broader S&P 500, Kelly. We are just about flat on the session right now, down about two points. The Dow Industrials is up about 103, 33,803. The Nasdaq Composite, the under performer off almost one full percent 109 points to the downside 11,679 for the S&P 500 by the way just to give you an idea of the range so far today at the highs of the session we were up roughly call it like eight or nine points at the lows of the session down about 21 so overall we are tilting towards the higher end of the range so we'll see if that sticks around with regard to the week that was in markets there is only one sector that's in the green right now for the week And that is energy because oil prices have risen this week, albeit, yes, off a lower base. But still, you can see the energy sector spider over the course of the week up about 4%. And by the way, ExxonMobil shares up about 6%. Now, if I was at the Telestrator, I would draw a big gold star next to Exxon because it did, in fact, hit a record high in trading today. So keep an eye on ExxonMobil. By the way, oil prices up on Russia headlines that it's going to look to cut production by half a million barrels a day come March. So watch that. And then... Three of the most influential stocks on the market's decline over the course of this week have come in key sectors. We're talking about names like Meta Platforms down 6%, Amazon down 6%, and Alphabet shares down around roughly 9 to 10%. And Kelly houses for a number. Those three percentage declines have equated into roughly $218 billion of lost market value in just those three stocks alone, with 129 of that coming from Alphabet. That's like almost the entire market cap of a Shell Oil and more than the entire market cap of Disney right now, Kel. And we'll have a whole lot more. Dom, come on over, by the way, but we'll have a whole lot more on that later on. Let's turn now to the curious case of the American consumer, as our CNBC guru Robert Hum is calling it, after an odd week of earnings reports. First, we have travel and experiences. Royal Caribbean reporting record bookings. Hertz posting a beat on, quote, renewed demand for travel. MGM and Wynn seeing big jumps in room occupancy rates and revenues. But then Lyft and Expedia both had big misses this week. Now, Chipotle and Kate Spade parent Capri Holdings also had disappointing reports, but said higher income customers are still holding up. Makes sense. We also saw that with cosmetics maker Cody posting 40% sales growth in its Gucci and Kylie Jenner brands. But we also saw some unevenness in Staples, where both Tyson and Unilever saw sales fall. Newell Brands beat but issued ugly guidance for the quarter and the year. And Kellogg and Pepsi were still bright spots thanks to growth in snacks. So what exactly is the state of the American consumer, aside from snacking? And how should you be positioned right now? Let's ask Joanne Feeney, partner in portfolio portfolio manager and advisors capital management. As I mentioned, Dom is with me as well. Joanne, I'll start with you. And, and why do you see ongoing resilience here? Well, good, good afternoon, both Kelly and Dom. Good to see you guys again. Uh, the consumer situation is a con- confusing one. Uh, you know, on the one hand, we're still seeing pretty good resilience at the low end of the consumer retail market, whether that's a, a TJ Maxx or, or a Target. The Target had some inventory problems they're working through 
But ultimately, you know, consumers that need to save money, those sort of in the middle of the income distribution are shifting down, hmm. shopping at Marshalls and TJ Maxx, et cetera. And folks at the very high end, which really aren't seeing a lot of a, a budget problem from the higher inflation, are still continuing to spend. Overall, I think the big aggregate number that investors need to be aware of is that disposable income uh, adjusted for inflation, so real disposable income, has actually been rising for the last several months. Mm -hmm. And that's not because real wages are rising, not because wages on average are keeping ahead of inflation, but rather because more people are employed. And so when you have this aggregate increase in folks employed, they're getting paid, their real disposable income is actually up. And I think that lies behind some of the consumer resilience we're seeing out there. And Dom, what would, you know, just curious what you would add following so, all these earnings reports that we're what, getting. What's interesting is you, you laid it out perfectly because it, it is such a mixed bag of commentary. But what it comes down to is that jobs market, right? We talk about the Fed and the reason why they're so hyper-focused on the labor component of inflation, of the economy, and everything else. If you take a look at the way things are shaping up right now, we're seeing inflationary pressures ease in certain key parts of the core CPI elsewhere in the marketplace. If that does then translate into more discretionary income for consumers, you might have maybe seen a bottoming process take place with regard to some of these consumer and names. And look at the sentiment report this morning. Right. I mean, it has increased the past And, and, and so if, if, if the, in the DNA of Americans is to spend, we are a consumer spending economy, more than two thirds of our GDP is. So if that is the case, those consumer names could be ones that if they are beaten up enough, become some of those relative bargains that people are looking for. And Joanne, just to get specific here, Ulta Beauty, TJ Maxx, parent company, Casey's General, all three of those stocks, by the way, are up over the past year. Target's down 20%, but you think that should qualify as well? Yeah, I mean, Target had a big inventory problem. Uh, you know, the pattern of consumer spending really did shift, and Target was not set up for it. They had too many discretionary goods in their stores. They need to shift that over. And so they took a big hit. And at this point, investors are saying, well, prove to us that you've solved this problem. So I think that, you know, the stock has languished in the wake of that. And but I do think that they're going to see pretty resilient spending. And so that makes that a good opportunity. And plus, they have a pretty decent dividend, well above average. So you're being paid a little bit to wait. But there are other places uh, that investors should look to get through this, more diversified, away from the consumer. Infrastructure is a good place. Defense is a good place to be at this point. Yeah, a lot of a lot of support for names like Lockheed, L3 Harris, Raytheon, those, all of those qualify. Also, you're looking a little bit in tech. And just do tell, because to Dom's point about how much market cap we've lost there, Microsoft is a name here. What would you do with the Google? You know, the, the, how do you perceive that the market uh, and the flows are moving from what used to be kind of the sure thing uh, to other parts of the market now? Yeah, it's a really challenging time uh, for the tech or growth investor, and, and for good reason in some ways, right? Earnings clearly coming down. Growth is decelerating, right? You look at those numbers, you can kind of explain the decline of the stock prices over the last year. And I think there's still a lot of uncertainty. That's an area of the economy that is facing contraction in some places, notably PCs and smartphones. Cloud is still in demand, it's still growing, but it's growing more slowly. So I think investors looking for tech opportunities really have to be long-term focused. We continue to like Microsoft, we like Amazon, uh, we like Google, we're a little bit nervous about some of the regulatory issues, we're a little bit nervous about some of the search competition now emerging from chatbots. But ultimately, they still own the search market, and we think that they will be able to use the chatbots as well as we're seeing, for example, Microsoft start to jump into that. Sure. So you have to have a long-term focus in tech at this point. The, e the economic focus is going to be big, right? The macroeconomic story, because what you've seen is a lot of companies and their CEOs uh, start to manage expectations lower. And they have during the entire earnings season. Uh, they could be doing so for the coming weeks and months. If that lower bar 
is able to be cleared, there might be a case to be made if the terminal rate for the Fed funds is coming up in, say, the next two to five months, right, that there's a catalyst, there's a call to action for investors to get back in. That's not to say it's going to happen, but a lot of folks are hyper-focused on whether or not there is that bat signal that goes up. And they're trying to figure <laughs> out if it, if it is the Fed and interest rates or whether or not it's any kind of commentary that comes out that's even, even incrementally higher than what the lower expectations exactly. are. Exactly. Looking through Harker now, you know, sort of saying labor market issues might be separate. We don't have to keep fighting that battle per se, but bat signal <laughs> is the image I like for now. <laughs> Guys, thank you. Joanne Feeney and our own Dom Chu. We appreciate Let's turn our attention now to Lyft and what exactly happened with that disastrous report last night. The shares are now down 36 percent on pace for their worst day on record after giving extremely weak guidance for this quarter. And it was just after Uber posted its strongest quarter in year ever. Both stocks were up about 45 percent to start the year. But after today's move, Lyft is now negative year to date and 80 percent off its highs. Deirdre Bosa is here now with more on what went wrong. And it's just are they just losing share, Deirdre? That's pretty much it. It's not really what happened this past quarter, which was decent in terms of expectations. It's where Lyft is going and the street has decided it's not really going anywhere. I mean, you talked about Uber's quarter. It set the bar high and Lyft during the earnings call kept talking about competition. They wouldn't actually say the word market share, but they're being beat here. And that's what's really hitting the stock. It was that profitability that investors are now looking for. They're searching for. Lyft was actually there to first to get there in terms of an adjusted EBITDA versus Uber a year ago, but now they're giving it up in order to compete with Uber. So I think one analyst called it a debacle for the ages. The earnings call was a disaster. You saw the stock drop an additional 5% and then today an additional 10%, bringing its losses to 35% lower in today's session. Kelly, this is a company that went public at $24 billion market cap. It is now, what is it, around $5 billion or so. Wow. Um, it has been absolutely disastrous. And I think it tells you, really, that ride-sharing may be a winner-take-most. It used to be that maybe there could be a duopoly, Uber and Lyft, but Uber has just pulled so far ahead this week. All I keep thinking is, can this be the death of Tam, please? If I hear one more thing about t- total addressable market, how many times, Deirdre, with Uber and Lyft, hey, guys, total addressable market, look at you know, how many people take taxes, look at the pent-up demand. I mean, it didn't matter at all. It was yeah. totally irrelevant. All it did was bid up the market valuation, reward people who were in early, and it's been a disaster as a publicly traded company. Well, remember also, Kelly, when it was autonomous driving that was going to be the thing that made Uber and Lyft profitable? That didn't shape up. But it is a good point because now folks are starting to wonder what actually happens with Lyft from here. Could a buyer come in and see some value here? Um, You look at GM, which made an investment years ago. Why wouldn't it just buy the whole thing now if it's trying to develop its own autonomous vehicle network? Would an Uber go in? Probably not. They'd rather just see Lyft flounder where it is. The DoorDash, Tony Shu has said he doesn't really see the synergies between ride sharing and food delivery. Um, so where does that leave Lyft? And I think that's a question that investors will be asking in the weeks and months ahead. Um, or maybe Lyft can turn it around. I don't know. It, not a lot of buy calls out there anymore uh, among Wall Street. I think there was eight downgrades this morning. And real quickly, what is this whole issue with insurance? And I ask not because of the whole did they or didn't they beat on earnings, just more from the point of view of why is their insurance exposure so problematic and so big? What what is that telling us? So Lyft has always had its eye on insurance. This has been a big cost for the company. And when you think about it versus Uber, right, it actually costs more to insure cars that are carrying people versus cars that are carrying food and food delivery. Mm. So Lyft talked a lot about this um, in that it hit that 
guidance in terms of its profitability. But I honestly think investors are looking past that, Kelly. The whole story is just market cap as we started out on. Yeah, and the weak demand. Market share, excuse me. Yes, totally. And demand issues that obviously, no matter whether you're carrying food or people, (laughs) if you don't have demand, uh, you don't have demand. And that's what the market's upset about. Deirdre, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa. Coming up, we're getting to the bottom of this housing market from renters to buyers to the builders. Where are the best opportunities for investors? That's next. Plus, one VC titan says there's a mass extinction event coming and a lot of startups aren't going to make it. He joins us with why this drought will be worse than the financial crisis and what founders can do to fund their companies before it's too late. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets. The Dow's up 112 points, but the S&P's in the, green, uh, in the red by a point and the Nasdaq is down almost 1% right now. Look at the 10-year yield, 3.72%. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. We've seen a huge rebound in shares of the home building stocks, up more than 50% since last June, even as mortgage rates have surged. Could it be that this spring selling season won't be as bad as feared? Santander sees a surge in household formations. UBS sees a uh, jump in search activity. Let's get to the bottom of this now with Diana Olick, who's looking at the renter piece of this. Stephen Stanley, chief U.S. economist at Santander U.S. Capital Markets, who has the pulse on buyers. And UBS analyst John Lavallo on the prospects for a further rally in the builders. Diana? Let's start with you. Well, Kelly, as housing overall gets more and more expensive, we're seeing the rise of the millionaire renter. The number of renters with household incomes over a million dollars tripled in the five years from 2015 to 2020 and continues to rise through now, that into a new, according to a new report from Rent Cafe, which is an apartment listing service. Now, this includes both single and multifamily rentals. And the number of wealthier Americans, that is people making over $100,000 a year, jumped 82% in that same period, a total of 2.6 million high-earning renters. Millennials, of course, make up 28% of those renters, with Gen X coming in second at 23%, followed by baby boomers. Gen X are renting jumped after the housing crisis that started in 2008. Now, the majority of millionaire renters are in management positions, followed by financial services, CEOs and legislators, software developers, and then lawyers and judicial workers. The top cities for millionaire renters are on the coasts and right here in D.C. Of course, San Francisco held the top spot. But cities seeing the biggest growth in wealthy wealthy renters, Seattle, Miami, Portland, Oregon, Austin, and Nashville. And of course, this is all positive for higher-end apartments and single-family rental REITs. Kelly? And I'm sure there are ways for people to play that. Um, Maybe we can talk a little bit about how those stocks have fared and, you know, what that's telling us. Yeah, absolutely. Look at some of the big REITs like Avalon Bay. You know, they got crushed in the early parts of the pandemic. Then they got better as rents began to rise. There was some trouble. But these are the buildings that are having the higher end rental demand. And then you look at something like American Homes for Rent, which is doing build for rent communities. And some of those communities are very high end with rents between four and five thousand dollars a month. And you're seeing more affluent renters moving into those. So if you look at some of the REITs that have that higher end product, those are the ones that could benefit from all of this. Very interesting. And, and it could keep upward pressure on rents, broadly speaking, Diana. I mean, that's the big question from the inflation point of view is are they peaking or not? 
Well, we are seeing rents ease up a little bit, but you are seeing increased demand. Now, the big question is going to be when more supply comes on the market. We're about to see a huge, a huge number of apartment rental units come on the market this year, and that could change the rent price dynamic a little bit, but demand just doesn't seem to be falling off just yet. Fascinating. Diana, thank you. We appreciate it, Diana Olick. Let's go to Stephen Stanley now, who's looking at household formations and what they're telling us about home buying and maybe renting activity as well, Stephen. I don't know if you want to key off of what Diana just said, but you do see some pent-up demand here. I do, Kelly. Good to be with you. So, yeah, my um, my thesis is more of a long-term situation, not so much around the cyclical idea, but um, we saw a massive increase in household formation during the pandemic. People wanted more homes. They wanted, you know, people moving out of urban environments into, into bigger spaces and whatnot. And it felt like a lot of that was going to reverse, not, maybe not all of it, but a lot of it was going to reverse in 2021 and 2022. And we did see that in 2021, but surprisingly enough, the data for 2022 was just uh, released last week and it showed a, a significant acceleration in household formation. So I think, you know, layered on top of what right now is, of course, a, a pretty weak cyclical environment for housing, the underlying structural one is still very positive. I think it's still one in which um, supply is is uh, falling short of demand. Uh, builders are going to be, you know, scrambling to catch up. I think for years. Do you have any insights, Stephen, on what's going on with all these millionaire renters and and kind of the renting versus buying aspect of this and what that would all mean for inflation? Well, I mean, I, I guess for one thing, I mean, you know, obviously it's more expensive at the margin to buy these days because mortgage rates are higher. Um, but I think in general, you know, the, the way that inflation is measured in the U.S. is keyed much more off the rental market than the, the ownership market. And so to the extent that there is a skew one between those markets one way or the other, it, it will have an influence on the, on the way that we perceive inflation. And final word on that, do you think that we're going to get kind of an, an unpleasant upside surprise here, maybe a head fake? I think that is a risk. I think that people have been very optimistic that inflation was going to come down rapidly in 2023. And it feels like to me, we've we've captured a lot of the low-hanging fruit already. And it's going to be much more of a struggle uh, to get inflation from where we are now down all the way to 2%. And a lot of Fed officials have been signaling that. So I think they're kind of braced for that scenario as well. Yeah, good point. Stephen, thank you for your time today. Stephen Stanley with Santander. And we turn now to John Lavallo for a look at the builders. And John, what a run they've been on. And I don't yeah. know. I don't know. How, how I take <laughs> Stephen's point about the long-run demand for housing and the shortages we face. But could we be at a cyclical peak right now after this rally? No, we, we don't think so, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Um, some pretty encouraging signs that it came out in January. Google home searches for new and existing homes were up 24 percent month over month. That's a sort of an encouraging point that leads us to believe that we're kind of returning to normal seasonality in this home building market. And that really corroborates what the builders have been saying, uh, where January demand has been pretty good and they're starting to see kind of typical seasonal norms come back. So I think that, you know, the stocks have had a very good run, but this is a cyclical industry, as we know, and they tend to overshoot at the top and they tend to overshoot at the bottom. So right. we still believe that multiples have a lot of room to blow out. I guess thinking through, they, they totally called the turning point. I forget who it was on our show who said, if you followed the builder stocks, they kind of peaked and, and told you that we were going to get this big spike in rates. And now we're seeing the opposite. You know, they were, in other words, falling as kind of a sign that the, this rate shock was coming. And now they're doing a whole lot better. Yeah. Um, the multiples are, are back. They're still low. But, it, you know, if we have an economy that's rolling over, can the housing market still continue to, to do well and put up good numbers? 
We think so. I think, first of all, estimates have been reset appropriately. So I think the expectations are on the investor side in good shape. Uh, on top of that, there's just a real undersupply of housing in the U.S. And whether or not you know rates go up or, or go down, people need a place to live. And there's, you know, and by our estimates, three to four million units of, of pent up demand that's still out there. And that has to be released at some point. So could we go through a bit of a slow period? Absolutely. But longer term, the fundamentals look good. And I think the housing stocks are reflecting, um, you know, an environment that is likely to improve. So you think the, the group is kind of broadly speaking can continue to do well? And where is that pent up demand coming from? What's driving that? Yeah, we absolutely think the stocks continue to do well. We still have called 20 to 30 percent upside in most of our, our price targets. Uh, where the pent up demand is coming from is it's pretty broad based. But I would say that the millennial generation, uh, as most people have, have heard this talked about before, uh, is a big driver of demand. They've been out of the market uh, for a number of years and just finally starting to come back, whether it's life events, marriage, uh, having children and so forth, whatever the case may be. They are back and they need a place to live and they're willing to, to make things work uh, by moving a little further away from the city, buying a smaller footprint, whatever it takes to make that math pencil. Finally, what's going on with the hot parts of the market from the past couple of years with the pandemic relocation? They're now the first ones that are seeing declines. So I, if this was all kind of a work from home restructure trend, cost of living move, you'd think there'd still be continued demand there. But instead, they seem to be the hardest hit. Why is that demand drying up? Is it because people literally have to go back to the office now? I think it's a couple of things. I think if you think about Austin, Phoenix, uh, Boise, uh, you know, markets like that where prices have ran so much that there is going to be some natural give back. And, and I think that this trend of, you know, kind of in migration towards the, the Sunshine States is still very much in, in you know, intact. Um, I just think that, you know, some of these markets overheated a bit. They're resetting, and I think that you're going to start seeing some improvement there as, as we go. All right. Better than feared for 2023. That's the call. Uh, and so far, again, it, it, listings in my town, still we're seeing that. We're still seeing sort of a surprising amount of demand uh, given everything that's going on. John, thanks for your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kelly. John Lavala with UBS. Coming up, we're counting down to Sunday's big game with a look at the company spending big on ads. If you invested in the big advertisers last year, by the way, you lost quite a bit of money. So which ones are buys this year and which one should you bail on? Our trader will make her case. As we head to break, the Dow is at session highs up 170 points with Chevron, Walgreens, UNH all leading the way. Salesforce, though, down another 4%. Disney right behind it. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Very different look here on markets today than what we're familiar with for the year because the Dow is leading the way with a half percent gain. We're near session highs, so up 170 points. S&P's up seven, but the Nasdaq is down half a percent. Big headwind there, Chinese internet stocks like JD.com. But also, let's take a look at that 10-year yield, 3.73% here. I mean, this is a pretty pronounced move. We were below 3.5% maybe last week. The fact that we keep drifting higher, there's some global events at play here. There was a strong one-year consumer expectations data in the Fed and the survey this morning, but keep an eye on this. It is certainly a headwind for the NASDAQ today. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Ty? Kelly, thank you very much. And here's what's happening at this hour. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has agreed to apologize and pay $3.3 million of taxpayer money to four former staffers who accused him 
of corruption. Their whistleblower claims led to an FBI investigation of Paxton. That was is ongoing. Paxton continues to deny any wrongdoing, saying the settlement will save money for Texas taxpayers. A lawyer for one of the former staffers says the size of the settlement speaks for itself. Florida's legislature has passed a bill expanding the state's program to fly immigrants to Democratic-led states and cities. It will let Governor DeSantis uh, relocate migrants from any state in the country, not just Florida. And a wildlife alert at a popular Japanese ski area, quiet day on the slopes, interrupted when a wild boar, there he comes, oh, eh, oh my goodness gracious, knocking a snowboarder to the ground uh, and then turning on another snowboarder before. I've never seen anything like this. Neither person happily was injured. Staff at the ski resort say they've never seen wild boars on the slopes before. But just to be safe, boar warning signs, Kelly, are being put up. This boar must be a skier, not a boarder. I don't think of them as winter animals. (laughs) See what you did there. Tyler, I'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Still ahead, after two slow years, IPO activity is starting to pick up again. Could we see a resurgence in startup investments as well? Our next guest says no, quite the opposite. He joins us next to explain. And during February, we're celebrating Black Heritage through the stories of some of our CNBC teammates, contributors, and leaders in business. Here is RBC Capital Managing Director and CNBC contributor, Halima Croft. I'm most proud to be my father's daughter. My father, Howard Cross, was a civil rights activist. He went down to Mississippi to help register voters. He did that at great personal sacrifice. And he was really sort of a foot soldier in the civil rights movement. He was not well known at the time. And I think about everything that I've been able to achieve in my lifetime, it's because of people like my father and all of those civil rights activists. Black History Month is that you know, month where I think back on all of those incredible individuals, both known and unknown, that just sacrificed so much to bring about such profound change in this country. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's no secret the IPO market has gone silent in the past two years, with 2022 being one of the slowest on record. But activity, actually, it's starting to pick up. This week was the busiest for IPOs since October. Not quite the same story in private markets, though, according to Crunchbase. Startup investment in the fourth quarter was down 63% year-on-year. And my next guest says things aren't likely to get better anytime soon, and the startup world should prepare for even a mass extinction event that makes 2008 look quaint. Joining me now is Tom Lavero, general partner at IVP. You guys are supposed to be optimistic, Tom. We can't have bad news coming from your corner of the world, too. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Kelly. So I do see a lot of analogies between this period and 08 in the sense that while we were all, you know, being destroyed by the GFC, the iPhone was born, right? And and the mobile revolution. And I, I see this now as, you know, while while this business cycle may be on its last gasps, look at what's happening in AI. Just talk a little bit about this dynamic and how it's affecting the startup world right now. Yeah, it does seem like AI is the next major wave of innovation uh, for the tech world generally. It feels like an iPhone moment for sure. It's one of those few moments in tech where you 
see this technology and you immediately realize it's going to change the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the entire world is going to bend in its direction. We're already seeing this within our portfolio of companies. I wonder, though, I have to imagine that capital writ large has shrunk. So in other words, maybe there's less funding available to go into new startups and, um, you know, higher rates and all the rest of it. So does that mean, especially with this shiny new toy in town that might be going into AI, what's happening to the rest of the startup and, and kind of new business and tech world? Yeah, that's right. Um, times have changed. I think it's going to be a tough couple of years for startups that are venture backed. That is, if they don't realize the environment has changed and they don't play their cards right. And so it's all about adjusting to the new reality. And what is that? What does that look like? What would your advice be if I'm a company? And there are a couple right now we're talking about still in the IPO pipeline. What should they do? Yeah, three pieces of advice. One, realize that the cheap, fast, abundant capital that was actually irrational is gone. Um, it's not coming back. And those valuations you saw in the public markets aren't coming back. Two, reorient from growth at all costs to efficient growth. And three, do your cash planning now. Don't assume it's going to be easy to raise. Cut burn if you need to. And then if you do those things, I think the good news is the economy is actually on solid footing. And this is one of the best times to grow a startup. And that's why firms like IVP are out there still investing. Why do you say it's still a good time to be growing as a startup? When your competition contracts, when they're spending less on marketing, when they're not hiring those top-level engineers, that's when you can go on offense and do those things cheaper and easier than it was, say, two years ago. That's a great point. And what do you think, I mean, we we're talking a lot about kind of incubating companies, developing them, bringing them to market, but what about the rest of the tech, the bigger tech landscape? We're seeing a lot of layoffs starting there. How is, do you think the story is likely to end? I think it ends the way it always ends in tech, which is short term, there may be a few bumps in the road, but if you look out 5, 10, 15, 20 years, technology is the fastest growing sector in the economy and it will continue to be. It is the power horse for innovation in our country and across the globe. And do you think there's going to be potentially acquisitions in the space as the bigger players are eyeing this pipeline as well? I mean, especially for what could be otherwise a pretty quiet year with not a lot of IPOs, not a lot of deal activity. Could we see uh, that from some of these names? You got it exactly right. Uh, big companies didn't want to acquire startups in the public or private markets because they were trading at irrational multiples, 50, 100 times revenue. But as those valuations and founder expectations are reset to normal levels, like the levels we saw in 2015 and 16, then the public companies can go out to their shareholders and justify these acquisitions because they don't look so expensive anymore. Yeah, it's a reality is setting in and, and maybe in the long run, that's a good thing. Tom, it's great to talk with you today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Tom Lavero with IVP. Let's stay in the VC space, the startup world. Angel investors are key to a startup success, yet a lot of black business owners aren't connected to that kind of funding. Sharon Eberson is here now with a look at one nonprofit, Sharon, that is working to change that. Hi, Kelly. Well, you know, we looked at a program that was developed by the Institute for Entrepreneurial Leadership to find out how and why they're focused on educating and connecting black investors and startup founders. As a young physician, Dr. Elizabeth Claiborne saw a need for a better way to stop a common condition she saw in the ER. What this does as a doc is it empowers anyone anywhere to stop nosebleed fast. She invented this Band-Aid-like device for your nose called Nasaclip and launched the business in 2020. 
getting funding for her startup has been a challenge. The year George Floyd was murdered in 2020, black founders got a record 16% of angel investments, up from half a percent in 2019. But in 2021, that figure fell to just 2% black companies are just not getting the funding. And especially when you look at black women, that's even less. Jill Johnson runs a nonprofit that introduces black entrepreneurs to angel investors, helping them obtain critical funding, connections, and knowledge. Capital in the United States of America is so plentiful. We have capital chasing some crazy deals, right? It's so plentiful, yet we have certain groups that have been historically excluded from this access. and. We need to change that. To be an angel investor, you must be an accredited investor with an income over $200,000 if single, $300,000 with a spouse, or a net worth over a million dollars, excluding your primary residence. These investments are high risk. More than two-thirds of startups never deliver a positive return to investors. I absolutely do expect an economic return. I believe in these companies. Angel investor Gina Nesbeth initially put money into Nasaclip after hearing Dr. Claiborne's pitch and later invested more. In the past two years, she's invested in several startups. I believe the companies themselves are going to grow and I believe they're going to hire people of color. And that's putting capital in the hands of people of color. That to me is addressing the racial wealth gap. Through angel investments, Dr. Claiborne has raised over $1 million for her startup so far and plans to have Nasaclip on the market in April. If you're interested in investing in a startup, you can do it on your own as an independent angel or join an angel group. Being part of a group gives investors the opportunity to pool their funds, to share knowledge, and to mitigate risk, Kelly. It's an independent angel. It sounds yeah. like a superhero or something. <laughs> um, what happens, we were just speaking about how the landscape is changing. There's less capital available. Is that going to starve these groups in particular of the funds that they might need? It's been a real struggle for so many groups to get this capital. But what people need to do if they're interested in doing this is to look and see what avenues are available. What angel groups perhaps could they go to learn more? A lot of universities have alumni angel groups, nonprofits like Eiffel are some that can teach you about it. And then find out if this is going to be right for you. The Angel Capital Association has a number of angel groups and platforms listed on a website. Find out more about them. Go to a couple meetings. See if it makes sense for you. No, it's a great point. I also look at that product, which seems so clever, and think, well, what happens if a big company sees the idea and copies it and steals it? You know, how do you not only bring something like this to market, but make sure that it's going to be successful in the marketplace? You need resources for that, too. She didn't start that business till she had the patents. So, you right. know. Smart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And those little steps can make all the difference in being Absolutely. successful, having the right coaches, the right, you know, people to kind of get you there. So it creates a network, and that's what they're trying to do with making Black Angels. To, to get some advisors who happen to be angel investors as well, who can work with entrepreneurs and helping them not just start their business, but grow it, scale it, and then exit the business, and maybe someone will want to buy it. Absolutely, and when, when it's appropriate. Sharon, thanks so much for your reporting on this. Sure. We appreciate it. It's good to see you again. Good Sharon Epperson. Still ahead, a firm getting crushed on its wider-than-expected loss, but it's a different story for this payment's name. We'll reveal it and what's driving its gains next.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow continues to lead the way today with a 100-point gain, while the S&P is now in negative territory by two, and the Nasdaq is down almost 1%. As I mentioned, 10-year yield right now is about 3.73%. That's a major headwind. Let's turn to mega cap tech as well, where we're seeing mostly red here. In fact, all across the board, even Alphabet has turned negative. Apple down a quarter percent, Microsoft down two-thirds, Amazon down 1%. And out of all of these names, Microsoft is the only one that's actually going to end the week in the green. Alphabet is down 10% just just since Monday. Of course, we all know what's happened with its rollout of its AI technology this week. Elsewhere, Expedia, among the worst performer in the S&P, among missing estimates uh, on the top and bottom line, with earnings per share coming in 24% below consensus. They're blaming this on cancellations due to severe weather. If so, it'd be a one-off, but the shares are perceived down 8% as reflecting maybe some bigger concerns. Sales and marketing expenses also soared 32%, and revenue was only up 15%. It's even dragging down shares of other booking sites like Airbnb, so it's not really a share story here. TripAdvisor, Booking Holdings, all seeing declines of between 35 to about 5.5%. Now, Global Payments was the mystery chart we showed you before the break. It's moving higher by about 4% after giving better-than-expected guidance for 2023. And interestingly enough, the CFO saying they expect a stable worldwide macroeconomic backdrop through the end of the year. Maybe wishful thinking, but investors don't think so. They like the message here, sending the shares up, as I mentioned, almost 5% today. Coming up, what ad recession? Companies are shelling out record amounts for Super Bowl spots, but should investors shell out for the stocks, the names spending big bucks, and whether they should be in your investing playbook? We'll have that next. Welcome back. Tech and social media companies raising another red flag about ads during their earnings season. But you wouldn't know it from the record price again for Super Bowl commercials. Same story year after year. Julia Borson is here to break down the numbers and the company spending big money. Who's it this year, Julia? I doubt we're going to be seeing a lot of crypto again. We're not going to be seeing a lot of crypto, but one thing's for sure, Kelly, based on these prices, very little signs of an ad recession, at least at the Super Bowl. Brands are paying up to a record $7 million for a 30-second spot, up from $6.5 million last year. Even several of the companies that have announced major layoffs, such as Google, Workday, and Warner Brothers, are investing in spots. Some key trends to watch this year, we can expect more beer ads now that Anheuser-Busch no longer has Exclusive rights. Molson Coors has partnered with DraftKings to invite fans to bet on what happens in their commercial. Now, that partnership is among at least a half dozen partnerships between brands within ads, including one between Netflix and GM. Some other key trends in this year's Super Bowl ads celebrity cameos from everyone from Will Ferrell to Serena Williams to John Travolta. And look out for QR codes, which are expected to be in about half of this year's spots to encourage consumers to scan to learn more. Now, one thing you won't see a lot of this year are automakers. Kia is the only automaker confirmed to be in the Super Bowl so far. And yes, Kelly, as you mentioned, no surprise that crypto companies will be absent after a surge in crypto ads last year. For more on the Super Bowl, you can watch an interview I did with the NFL's Brian Rollapp on CNBC Tech Check's LinkedIn page. You should have had a QR code for that, Julia. 
I should have. That's right. <laughs> We've got one coming to this show. They're going to be everywhere. I don't know if we can invest in that. I'll ask Victoria. Julia, thank you very much. Uh, Julia Borston. Which of the big names throwing money into Super Bowl ads this year should investors throw their money behind and which should they avoid? Because last year was a disaster. Let's turn to CNBC contributor Victoria Green. She's CIO at G Squared Private Wealth and has three names to buy and one to bail on from here. And Victoria, it's not just crypto. Vroom advertised, Coinbase. Uh, well, that's crypto. Rocket Mortgage, Salesforce. Okay, Meta. Oh this God. is like, yeah, okay. So uh, let's start. Maybe with- we should put together an ETF. Right. And then we just trade on just a short of everybody that has Super Bowl ads, right? We'll call it punt or something. Um, all right, let's turn to your first buy here, which is Uber. And after uh, being up pace for its worst day of the year because of Lyft's disastrous results, they did just report a strong quarter. And you like the stock here. Tell us about it. I do. I really think they're going to retest their highs up at 44. They finally broke out of the sideways range they've been in for a couple months. But it's not just that. They have the scale and the profitability. And you saw the Super Bowl matchup this week in earnings between Uber and Lyft. Uber executed. Lyft did not. People are willing to pay more for their rides. Uber is the more luxury product. They've got 118 million riders now. They're ramping up uh, their different lines of business with, with Uber Eats. And now they're getting into freight shipping. So I think not only are they expanding globally, they have the riders, only about 17 people cross share across the app so they can continue to grow cross share revenue. And they're trying to grow ad revenue to a billion dollars by 2024. I really like the trajectory of the stock and I like the momentum a lot. So I'm a buyer of Uber here. All right. Let's turn then to Pepsi, a very different kind of name, a frequent Super Bowl advertiser as well. They just posted earnings. They're having their best week since October and they've beaten the streets for 16 quarters straight. So you're sticking with this one? Absolutely. They have a history. Their, their management likes to give conservative guidance. That's why they continually beat expectations. We love their way to execute. First off, who doesn't have chips, Cheetos, Fritos, and, and Doritos at their Super Bowl party? So obviously Pepsi is a great play here. But not just that. Look at their chart. They have had three, uh, three months recently where they've had these dips like they've had to start this year. And each time they've stopped at a, a higher low and they pushed up to a higher high. They're in this uptrend channel. I really like this chart. I really like the stock. They've been They've been very disciplined with their pricing. They're able to pass on a lot of their inflation to consumers, protect their margins, and and they they have the potential, I think, to push up to 185 and potentially push up higher. So I think you see Pepsi really well positioned, both technically as well as the fundamentals on the stock. Strong earnings, strong management. You got to love it when all three of those align. All right, let's turn now to the drinks makers. And you're a buy on one and a bail on the other. Your buy would actually be Budweiser's (laughs) parent company, AB InBev. Seven-day losing streak. Um, You know, notorious Super Bowl advertiser, but you like something you see with profit margins. What's going on here? Yeah, so they're more of an emerging market stock than people realize. Only about 30% of the revenues comes from the U.S. And wow. so they'll very much benefit from a weaker dollar. And we think the momentum they have in Latin America can continue to progress. So we look beyond the U.S. So not only am I hoping for like puppies and Clydesdales in their commercial, but I think that they, they continue to sell well. They pass on their margin. We've seen this time and time again from these beverage makers of how are they able to pass on prices to consumers. And so far for Budweiser, they protected their margins. 
They're going to have a lot less FX headwind next year. And we see continued growth not only in uh, Latin America, but potentially also in China. So think of this not as just the U.S. and, and sitting around drinking a, an ice cold Budweiser on your back porch. This is also an emerging market stock. And I think they have a lot of room and growth potential. I also think they're finally poised to break out on this chart. They've been stuck on this 50, 60 range for months now. Hmm. I like this stock. I'm, I'm putting, I'm betting on them to, to get a little lift here. Yeah, I never think of them as an EM play. That's a great, great point. So then we'll turn. That's your buy. But you would actually bail on Diageo. They make Johnny Walker, Guinness, a bunch of other stocks down today. Actually, on pace for its third straight month of losses, even though I mean, we're just learning about spirits overtaking beer as a, you know, a big consumption point in the U.S. Tell us why this one is uh, is not a stock that that you think will do quite well. Yeah. Well, hold my beer, but no, yeah. this one is all about the U.S. <laughs> it's about 35% of revenues, and the U.S. slowed dramatically in their, their uh, mid-year update. We saw only about 3% growth versus the 6.5% expected, and they also warned that Europe is also slowing. The, the management literally came out and said, don't expect these double-digit sales growths. We think we're seeing a normalizing trend. So as we see this business slow, we see it slow dramatically in the U.S. We saw scotch slow. We saw vodka slow 15%. Mm -hmm. uh, and the only thing that grew is we did consumer tequila. That one grew about 24%. I just think the stock, one, is stuck in a bad downtrend. The chart looks ugly. I don't think you see any supports here. And then two, if you're seeing slowing revenue growth and you're seeing one of their core markets slow, I just can't get behind buying the stock right now, and it's a bail. You going to watch the Super Bowl? Absolutely. I'm ripping for the puppy bowl, though, to be honest. My, my poor lowly Texans did not quite make it this year, but we have hope. <laughs> yeah, they didn't quite. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Victoria. It's great to have you today. We appreciate it very much. Have a great weekend. Victoria Thanks, Green. And we're going from the TV to the table next on Power Lunch. We'll get a look at those big game snacks we just talked about that are seeing price deflation. What does that tell us about what's going on in the economy right now? There's Power Lunch quarterback Tyler Matheson getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this quick break.